Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on symptom management. Hello, I'm Jillian Gustin, and I'm here to talk to you about a very important topic that affects many of our patients and their families, and that is nausea and vomiting. I'd like us to start by watching a, a short clip from a video from the movie Wit. It is a wonderful movie that I suggest everybody see about a professor who's going through the experience of being diagnosed with cancer and then undergoing treatment. And we're going to watch just a very small piece of it about what her experience is like having nausea and vomiting. But I could not have imagined the depths of humiliation. Oh, God. Please. left to puke. You may remark that my vocabulary has taken a turn for the Anglo-Saxon. God, I'm going to buff my brains out. If I did actually bath my brains out, it would be a great loss to my discipline. Of course, not a few of my colleagues would be relieved to say nothing of my students. It's not that I'm controversial. It's just uncompromising. So how was that to watch? It is not easy to watch someone vomiting. I know even as a physician, I find it difficult to be in a room when a patient is vomiting. I know as a mother, I find it difficult to watch when my kids are vomiting. I know as a person who's experienced nausea, it is a hard thing to go through all day long, that feeling of wanting to throw up. We all know how it feels. And so what I would like us to do today is think about how do we better address this issue for our patients and for their families because they are all going through this together. So our objectives today are threefold. The first is I'd like us to think about 
what is nausea and vomiting? What is the pathophysiology that leads to this experience? The second is actually to develop a very rational approach to how we try to manage it. And finally, I'd like us to walk through some cases where we can actually practice what we've learned today. So let's start with the most important question. Why do we care? There's a variety of reasons. And we've already talked about a few of them, and that is we all know how it feels for it to be ourselves or for it to be somebody that we love. At the same time, it's important for us to realize that 70%, 70% of our patients with cancer are going to experience this. And as they experience this very distressing symptom, there's a lot of thoughts that go through their head. Is it ever going to go away? Are they going to feel this throughout every single day of their treatment? Does it mean their cancer is getting worse? So this is a very important topic for us to think about how do we address this well? It affects their quality of life and how they think about their disease. So the first thing we need to do is think about how do we assess this well? And for any symptom that we've talked about, we need to think about the assessment first. So I'm hoping this, these bullet points here are things you've seen before. It's the assessment that we often use when we're thinking about pain issues. And it is very similar for nausea and vomiting. The only difference is that we don't worry so much about the location. So when we're talking about pain, we say, where does it hurt? When you're asking about nausea, less important. We still need to know what does it feel like? Is it there all the time? Does it get worse when you eat? Is it worse in the morning? Is it better in the morning? How severe is it? To help us judge, what is it that we need to do? And then we need to ask people, what are you doing? So we know there's lots of wonderful homegrown remedies for nausea and vomiting. My mother used to give me ginger ale. I'm not sure it really worked, but gosh, it made me felt, feel very well cared for. So asking, is there anything that you're trying? Have you used anything over the counter? And that will help us develop the plan as we move forward. Then I want us to think about a general conceptual model about how do we manage it. And what I've seen working with trainees is what they often do is they have a laundry list of all the different medications they could use. And they just walk through it. I'd like to challenge you to do it slightly differently. I want you to think about what's the cause. And if we can actually treat the cause, we've treated the nausea and vomiting. Sometimes we can't treat the cause, or it's hard to figure out what the cause is. And in that case, today we're gonna to talk a little bit about how do you identify the pathway that leads to the sensation of nausea and then the act of vomiting, and are there medications to block those pathways? So let's talk about what are the causes for nausea and vomiting. This is a chart that we made that for me is a very easy way to think about what causes emesis. 
And I'd like us to just go through some elements of this chart in a little more detail. So we think about the causes as above the neck, below the neck, and then the systemic causes. Starting with above the neck, hopefully these are things that you're fairly comfortable diagnosing. So does the person have a brain mass or metastases? Is there any meningeal irritation? We know that migraines and headaches can cause nausea and vomiting. And then finally, for many of us, movement is a big one. I know when I get on a sailboat, I definitely experience nausea and unfortunately some vomiting. The below the neck ones are interesting also too for us to just take a moment. Masses and metastases, one of the things that I want you to think about is it's not just when you have an intra-abdominal mass, but sometimes if you have, let's say, peritoneal carcinomatosis. That's a type of metastases that can slow your gut down and cause some nausea and vomiting. Mucosal irritation, another one that often happens with our cancer patients when they've had any kind of radiation that causes irritation. The other piece that can happen is if you've had some kind of bacterial infection within the GI tract, that can also elicit nausea and vomiting. Mechanical obstruction, hopefully that's something that is fairly self-explanatory. And then myocardial infarction. Just let's take a moment here. So we know for many of us when we talk about heart attacks or heart failure, we talk about that, that pressure in the chest. In this case, we know that nausea and vomiting for women is a very common atypical sign of a myocardial infarction. So it's something that you should be thoughtful about. And finally, the, the obvious one, one that I definitely experienced, is maternity. Being pregnant can often make you feel nauseous and cause some vomiting. Let's take a moment to think about the systemic causes. So we know for many of our patients, anxiety is something that can actually cause nausea. And I wanna give you an example. Many years ago, before we had great antiemetics to help with chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, patients would come, they'd get their chemotherapy, and they would experience the symptom. It got to the point that as they were driving to the infusion suite or the hospital where they were going to get their chemotherapy, just looking at that building was enough to induce nausea and vomiting. So anxiety or that sort of pre-programmed preparation for something that you know will cause the symptom can actually cause the symptom. We know many medications, and hopefully you have access to resources that can help you figure this out. Medications themselves can cause nausea and vomiting. We know different types of infections and metabolic abnormalities all can contribute to nausea and vomiting. I'm a big fan of that chart that I just showed you, but a colleague of mine showed me this other mnemonic that also can be very helpful as you're trying to remember what is that differential diagnosis for nausea and vomiting. We're not gonna go through all of these, but suffice it to say, if you can remember the word vomiting, you should be able to get through all the different potential causes 
of what is contributing to that symptom. So, back to our conceptual model. As you can see, we started by saying, can you identify the cause? And if any of those causes, whether you're using the chart or the vomiting mnemonic, allow you to think of a treatment, that is where you need to go first. Try that first. If you can cut off the cause, the symptom gets better. If you can't, we need to move into thinking about what are those pathways. So let's move on to what are the pathways. I'm hoping you all recognize what this is a diagram of. It is our brain. And this becomes incredibly important as we think about what the pathways are for nausea and vomiting. There are two. Two important ones that you need to know. The first is the vomiting center. It's in the medulla, and it's where all the projections come to, and then the vomiting center coordinates the effort of vomiting, that expulsion of gastric contents that we all have experienced at some point in our life. The other area is called the chemoreceptor trigger zone. And it too has many projections that come through it, and then it has its own projections that lead to the vomiting center. And what's really interesting about the chemoreceptor trigger zone is that it is at the base of the fourth ventricle, an area of the brain where there is no blood-brain barrier. This becomes important because it means that the chemoreceptor trigger zone can sense, can react to anything that's in our cerebrospinal fluid whether it's metabolic abnormalities, medications, bacteria, it is gonna pick that up and respond to it. So let's talk about those pathways. We've already talked about the chemoreceptor trigger zone that we know has projections straight to that vomiting center. We also have projections that come from our cortex. There are projections that come from our vestibular system those that are in our ear. And I think many of us, as we talked about earlier, have experienced that feeling of nausea when you're starting to rock, whether it's on a boat, on a car ride. And then finally, those peripheral pathways that are in our GI tract. In each of those pathways, there are neuroreceptors and neurotransmitters that help modulate this experience. I've listed them all here for you. Neurokinin, serotonin, dopamine, acetylcholine, histamine, and GABA. All of these will become important, and I'm gonna try and put these together for you so that you can see how this can make sense. So here's our diagram. It looks complicated, but let me walk you through it. It shows the different pathophysiology, the different projections that lead to that vomiting center. So let's go through it step by step. If you look on the bottom, you'll see the GI tract. And what we know about the GI tract is there's many serotonin receptors there. Those projections then go up to the chemoreceptor trigger zone that then send projectors right to the vomiting center. 
The rest of the pathways are within the brain. There's the cortex. That seems fairly obvious that the projections will go straight either to the chemoreceptor trigger zone or straight to the vomiting center. There's the vestibular apparatus within our ear that again has projections straight to the chemoreceptor trigger zone or straight to the vomiting center. And then we've already talked about that chemoreceptor trigger zone. As you can see in yellow, I've tried to highlight all the different neurotransmitters that help modulate these projections. So, we talked about the GI tract and serotonin. Within the vestibular apparatus, it's acetylcholine. Within the chemoreceptor trigger zone, there are actually many, which makes it a little more complicated. At the same time, what we know is the predominance of neurotransmitters is actually dopamine. There's histamine as well, serotonin as well, and neurokinin. So let's move on to the rational approach to management. We've talked about this conceptual model, how the rational approach to management is first and foremost, identify the cause. And if you can identify the cause and treat it and improve the nausea and vomiting, that's what we're aiming for. If, and it often happens, we can't treat the cause or we can't actually identify the exact cause, then we need to think about what's that pathway and how do we block it. And that's what we'll spend the rest of the time talking about. How do we block those pathways with medications? I want us to take a bit of a step back and think about what is the appropriate way to dose medications. And what I often see with folks who are new to treating nausea and vomiting is they wait for the nausea to occur and then they give the medication. What that does is it forces your poor patient to kind of be on this roller coaster ride, this chasing of their tail, always trying to get ahead of the nausea. So I would challenge you, instead of doing it that way, dose around the clock. Make sure they're getting medications on a regular basis so that they're not constantly having that up and down of nausea and vomiting. If you find a medication that works well for your patient and it's not quite as tolerable as they want it to be, then increase it. Titrate to effect. The other interesting thing about antiemetics is how you can use that side effect profile. So sometimes that side effect profile will be limiting. It may be that that side effect is intolerable and you need to change medications. Sometimes, however, that side effect profile may alleviate some other symptom that your patient is having. And that way, you're managing multiple symptoms at the same time, and it might help you choose what's the right medication for your patient. And finally, if you try one medication and it's ineffective, don't stop there. Add another, and try and find another that works through a different mechanism, through a different pathway that will help to alleviate that nausea and that vomiting. There are non-pharmacologic techniques to trying to manage nausea and vomiting, some which I think will probably be things you've tried before. 
If you go to the bottom of the list, you'll see there's my ginger ale that my mother loved to give me when I was a kid. It also may be simple things like if the nausea comes after big meals, then don't eat big meals. Eat smaller, more frequent meals through the day. Or if there are particular smells that just get that nausea much worse, then try and avoid those. There are some wonderful studies on some of these other elements of, of non-pharmacologic management, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, acupuncture, relaxation, and hypnosis. And these are all things that we should be offering our patients to try and help them manage nausea and vomiting. So let's talk about the medication classes. These are tools that you will have in your toolbox to try and manage the nausea and vomiting. I'm gonna give you a list of, all, of examples for each of these classes, knowing that they're just examples. There's other ones within each class that you could use. So, for dopamine antagonists, we often use haloperidol. For 5-HT3 antagonists, we often use ondansetron. For neurokinin antagonists, and this is often used for delayed chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, we use a prepotent. For prokinetics, the one we usually turn to is metoclopramide. For antihistamines, we often use meclizine. Anticholinergics, the example I would give is a scopolamine patch. Steroids, we often use dexamethasone. And finally, benzodiazepines, the one that we frequently use is lorazepam. So here's that diagram again that shows us the different pathways, the different projections that go to the vomiting center to help coordinate nausea and then the actual act of vomiting. What I'd like to do is walk through this diagram and try and think about what is the right medication depending on what the pathophysiology is. So let's start at the GI tract. As an example, let's say you have a patient who has just gotten chemotherapy and has mucositis. Or let's say they've had radiation to the area and have mucosal injury from the radiation. This is a place where you would think, I wanna have a 5-HT3 antagonist and we would recommend a medication like ondansetron. How about if you have a patient who actually needs to go on a long car ride or wants to go on a sailboat and we know that that vestibular apparatus is going to be activated and we wanna think about how do we help with the nausea from that. Well, the receptors we're trying to target are acetylcholine and histamine, so our option, options could be scopolamine, meclizine, or even something like atropine. Let's think about the cortex. And this one is a little more complicated. We talked earlier about that anxiety-induced nausea, which has to do with how we think about the experience. If you know you have a patient that gets anxiety every time they need to go to their chemotherapy appointment, then perhaps a low dose of a benzodiazepine, such as a lorazepam, might make sense. If you have a patient that has a large CNS mass, 
causing cerebral edema, you may want to think about something like a steroid, a dexamethasone. Now I want to switch to that chemoreceptor trigger zone. And this is interesting because we have a lot of receptors in there that we could target. When you look at the literature on chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, there's two different classes that you could use. There's 5-HT3 antagonists, and that would be medications like ondansetron. Or, if that's not working, you can move to neurokinin antagonists, such as a prepotent. I will say, if it's not chemotherapy-induced, we often go to dopamine antagonists. And the kinds of things that come up here beyond chemotherapy could be uh, metabolic abnormalities or other medications or infections that we know the chemoreceptor trigger zone is responding to. And we go to a dopamine antagonist like haloperidol. It would not be wrong to use an antihistamine. So do know that is another medication that you have in your toolbox. We've just talked about what causes nausea and vomiting, what's the pathophysiology of nausea and vomiting, and how do we management. I'd like you now to take all of the knowledge that you've just built up and let's try and apply it to some cases. We're going to give this a little bit of time to practice. So here's your first case. You have a 66-year-old woman. She's has advanced pancreatic cancer. She unfortunately has been having some increased abdominal pain over the last few weeks, and she goes in to see her oncologist, and her oncologist up-titrates her opioids. It works. Her pain is much better. However, after a few days, she notices that she's nauseous. She's nauseous all the time. So you ask her some questions. What makes it better? What makes it worse? And she says, it's all the same. It's just there all the time. You ask her about her bowel movements, knowing that sometimes constipation can add to nausea. And she says, interestingly, I haven't been going regularly the way I normally do. You think about all the information she's, she's giving you, and I want you to just take a moment what is the cause of her nausea here? We've decided that our patient is suffering from opioid-induced nausea and vomiting. Now, what is the treatment? So here's what we know about the pathway. The opioids get into the cerebral spinal fluid. They activate that chemoreceptor trigger zone because we know there's no blood-brain barrier there. So that's the pathway we want to try and target. There are multiple receptors that we've talked about that are in that chemoreceptor trigger zone. The one that we tend to go to first for opioid-induced nausea and vomiting is dopamine. And one of the great dopamine antagonists is haloperidol. Let's go to our next case. This is a 24-year-old woman. She has acute leukemia, and she's currently getting chemotherapy. She develops mucositis. She has some drooling. She can't take anything in orally because it's just too 
painful. Her team in the hospital puts her on a morphine infusion to try and address that oral pain, and it works. Unfortunately, she ends up with some nausea. She falls asleep for a few hours. When she awakens, the nausea is still there, although the pain is okay. How, what is the cause here? How can we impact this? I would say that she probably has two things going on. It could be from the morphine. It's possible. We've talked about how we would address uh, opioid-induced nausea and vomiting. The other issue here is it's that mucositis. It's that irritation to the GI tract that's causing her to have nausea and vomiting. So how do we treat it? What's the mechanism? That mucosal injury. So what's the pathway? It's probably that peripheral pathway from the GI tract to the chemoreceptor trigger zone. And so can we antagonize those receptors in the GI tract? And that would be 5-HT3. And we would think about ondansetron. It's also possible it was that opioid-induced nausea and vomiting, so maybe we could think about a dopamine antagonist like we talked about in the last case. And sometimes for these young patients, there's a lot of anxiety involved, and maybe a low-dose lorazepam might be helpful too. In here, I would really start with that ondansetron, really trying to impact that pathway from the peripheral GI tract and see if she improves, knowing that I have some other medications that I can add if needed. Let's try another case. This is a 46-year-old woman. She's got a history of diabetes. She has metastatic colon cancer. We know she has lots of liver involvement, and she's got some malignant ascites as well. She's been talking a lot about chronic nausea and intermittent vomiting. She feels bloated all the time. She feels like she has reflux. And when you ask her what makes it worse, what makes it better, she says, whenever I eat, I just feel full. What's the cause here? I think, again, there's probably multiple mechanisms here. One could be when our livers get large with metastases, we often don't have a lot of room in our abdominal cavity and it can squash that stomach. So when she has those big meals, there's just not as much room. And that can make that sense of early satiety of feeling full. The other is knowing that she has malignant ascites, I would probably take that step forward and, and wonder, does she have peritoneal carcinomatosis? All of those things can decrease her motility. It can just slow down that GI tract. Again, which means when she eats those meals, things are not moving down, and she gets that nausea and vomiting. So how do we treat it? Well, we talked about the mechanism. Decreased motility, we're not able to move things down. So we may want to think about peripheral pathways, chemoreceptor trigger zones. We've talked about different receptors there. 
want to add one, and that's those prokinetics. Can we use that peripheral pathway, the prokinetics, to try and move things through the stomach? And that would be metoclopramide. Again, as we talked about that rational approach to management, if that one medication isn't enough, so if you try metoclopramide and it's not working, then try another with a different mechanism, such as haloperidol that will work within the chemoreceptor trigger zone. One more case. We have a 38-year-old male. He has metastatic melanoma. He gets acute onset of vomiting that's much worse in the morning. He wakes up, he goes from lying to sitting, and he vomits. He does report a headache, and this has been getting worse over the past few days to a week, but he doesn't have a stiff neck. You're not, he doesn't have any other signs or symptoms that would make you worry about infection. What are you thinking about here? What's the cause? My guess here, knowing how metastatic melanoma works, is he probably has a metastasis in his CNS. And the, as that metastasis is there, there's probably some subsequent cerebral edema. So he goes from lying to sitting, he's feeling those shifts. The headache, the worse in the morning, the type of cancer he has, makes me think this is all about his CNS. This is all about cerebral edema. So how do we treat this? We talked about the mechanism, increased intracranial pressure from cerebral edema. That pathway is the cortex. We have lots of different receptors that we can antagonize within the chemoreceptor trigger zone because we know those projections go from the cortex down to the chemoreceptor trigger zone. But one of the best medications we have for increased intracranial pressure and cerebral edema is steroids or dexamethasone. So, you've learned a, hopefully a lot today about what causes nausea and vomiting, what the pathophysiology is, how to manage it, and hopefully we all can be empathic. We all have experienced nausea and vomiting at some point in our lives and in those of whom we love. So I would implore you, don't ignore this symptom. It affects quality of life. And hopefully you now have the tools to manage it. So I leave you with this. I hope you have a rational approach to managing nausea and vomiting and that you think about it in terms of the targeting of the causes and of the pathways. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content. Make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, 
please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.